0: Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. I'm very interested in government, especially with the laws that are passed by our government. But I know very little about what actually takes place behind the scenes in the legislative process. But I think it's in all of our interest to know. So today we have on a former two-time Connecticut state senator and he's going to tell us all about it. Len Susio, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and I think it's a, certainly an important topic to discuss because most people have no idea how the sausage is made. As Bismarck <laughs> yeah. once commented, people like sausage in the law shouldn't watch how they're being made. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so uh, it seems like the government does so much, and there's so many laws passed, that in order to do pass any of these laws effectively to be informed about what they're doing. Legislators would have to be awful, awfully knowledgeable people in so many different subjects. I mean, you know, economics, law, welfare, building codes, you know, whatever, all kinds Mm -hmm. of things. In your experience, on average, I mean, I know everybody's different, but on average, are legislators informed about most of the issues on which they're voting?
1: I would say only superficially. They don't really get into it. I know in my first term, when I was there, uh, I was wa- looking at all the legislation that had been introduced, and I finally said, wow, there's a lot of uh, proposed bills here. I wonder how much, how many bills there are. So I asked the uh, Office of Legislative Research, I said, how many bills have been proposed? This is back in 2011. They said over 3,500 bills have been proposed. There's no way anybody could... read everything and understand all that stuff you know read the bill to begin with and you got to read it carefully and then and then understand the data behind it that might be used to rationalize it so it's actually impossible to do uh and uh one way people handle that in the legislature part of the process is both parties the republicans and the democrats have caucuses and so and their members are assigned different committees because there are committees in the legislature that review these proposed bills and debate them, discuss them, and then eventually decide to recommend them to the Senate and the House for a debate and approval or reject them. So uh, basically every party has people assigned to each committee which will review all these bills and, and then the committee members in their caucus can brief the uh, Republicans or the Democrats about, well, okay, here's bill XYZ. That's a bad bill. Here's This is a good bill, et cetera. And, so, and then they'll a- answer questions in caucus too. So we have to rely on one another to help out. Moreover, we both caucuses have staff, full-time legislative staff that also uh, review the legislation. There's the lawyers and things like that. So they'll they'll review it as well, and then they'll share their legal opinion about it. But what complicates the matter even more is not only that there's bills that are being proposed, uh, but then there's amendments to the bills, which can change them radically from something that they originally were to something uh, that they were never intended to be. And then finally, in the process itself, there are bills that don't go through committee. Uh, and so they those are put on an accelerated process, rationalized by urgency or whatever. And a good example would be like at the end of the session when there's only a couple of days ago, you got to pass the budget, you've got to pass what they call the implementer, et cetera. And, and those bills can be 800, 900 pages. And you're given the 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 bill the day that you're going to debate it. So you have to read eight or nine hundred pages, and this is not a novel. This is highly technical language. So a little a comma here, period there, uh, a shall versus may, uh, a change in the wording can make a very big difference in the interpretation of the law if it's eventually passed. And a lot of times in that that latter part, uh, the leadership of the party in control will frequently. Try to sneak what they call rats uh, into the into the uh, legislation. They'll sneak a little clause or a paragraph into a 900-page bill that uh, has nothing to do with the overall uh, content of the bill. And if you don't read it and identify that, then that rat could get it, be included in in the final version of the bill when, after it's debated and voted on. Yeah, you so know, if I've read bad.
0: my share of laws. And these things are like mind numbingly boring and confusing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, you, you also have the, this is now in place, you know, subsection C of the, the, the former amendment A from the bill. Mm-hmm. This And this is going to, now you have to go check what is it replacing? What it, it's just, right. a, it's in, insane. I don't really like the word insane, but I don't know a better word for it. So you have yeah. 3,000 plus bills, that's in one legislative session.
1: 3,500 bills, that was back in 2011. If anything, it's probably more today than ever.
0: And how long is the average bill?
1: Well, at that point, when they're first introduced, they can be pretty brief. They're just saying, okay, here's a bill uh, that, in the initial phase, the document just says, oh, here's the topic, and here's the general intent of the bill. And then the bill, the proposal, is passed to the legislative staff that actually writes the bill out in full. So the initial version could be be only a page or two uh, or five or six or seven pages. But the final version, of course, can go on far beyond that, because once the legislative staff, they have staff up there that do nothing but draft bills for legal uh, adoption, basically. So it gets to that. See, a lot of times people, the leadership will say to, let's say, Len Susio, Len, we liked your first bill and your second bill, but we didn't like that third bill. Uh, why don't you just forget that bill and we'll we'll authorize the staff to draft the language in your first two bills that we really like. So these are lawyers, people who do nothing all their career except for right le- uh, bills and legislation. And it's highly technical, like you say. So th- it's not like the legislator himself or herself sits there and writes out a bill. They just say, here's what I want to do. Here's the intent, blah, blah, blah. And if they get the support of the leadership, then it'll go to uh, the the uh, legislative group that actually writes the bill.
0: And how long is the legislative session? What is it, three months?
1: Well, it depends on what year. If, if as you know, uh, the the legislature is elected every two years, yeah. So after you're elected, the first year goes uh, the legislative session goes from I think it's like uh, the second Wednesday in January to the I think it's the second Wednesday in June, uh, or it's the first Wednesday following the first Monday, you know, that kind of uh, yeah. for the the second Monday. Uh, so that's the long session and the long, that means it's a what, January to February, March, April, May. June. So it's five months basically. Okay. And, and, and the short session, it doesn't begin until February and it's over with in early May. So it's like three months. Okay. Uh, and, okay. So it's the, uh, you know, the, le- the, uh, <laughs> the elections are in the even years. So the long sessions goes in the, in the odd years and the uh, short sessions go in the even years.
0: So we've got 3,500 bills, some of which are over, you know, hundreds of pages long. This is taking place in a maximum of five months. And plus there has to be debating and voting on these things. It, it's not conceivable that somebody can read all those bills. It's just not possible. No. Even if somebody was dedicated and really wanted to, you could never read them no. all.
1: No, yeah. I was a maniac when I was there. I tried to do everything I could, yeah. but- it's beyond and don't forget, uh, technically these are not full-time jobs. So like I have a business and so, uh, you know, I've got to pay attention to that as well. I, I, I don't mind working 16 hour days. I, I thank God I have good health and, uh, that's by nature, but there's a limit to what you can do though. There's, there's an actual limit to it. Yeah.
0: Now the public is allowed to go and give testimony, (laughs) Yes. in Regards to bills like I, I recently went and testified about for a, a <laughs> judicial committee, but they you're only, I think, given two two or three minutes to testify. Yeah. To each, yeah. each person. So th- does public testimony actually make any difference in these things or are, other are minds? Because it seemed to me when I was before that committee. Test testifying that the people on there already had their minds made up at the beginning and nobody right. up there changed their opinion. Is it common for them to change based on what the public comes and testifies or is that just theater?
1: Uh, well, first of all, most bills are supposed to go through a public hearing. So uh, again, sometimes that's circumvented. And unfortunately that's usually when there's something going on behind the scenes that, the politicians don't want you to know, so they don't want, and they don't want to have a big controversy, so they'll try to avoid uh, a public hearing by justifying, uh, you know, the uh, circumvention of that, but generally speaking, it's required to have a public hearing, and there's nothing that says your, your comments have to be limited to two or three minutes, which, although that's the norm, there's nothing in in the, uh, in the constitution of the state or anything that says, oh, nobody can speak more than three minutes. Uh, so, uh, but sometimes, especially for uh, complex and controversial bills, um, there'll be a huge throng of people that show up. And so if you don't limit their comments to three minutes, you could wait for hours and hours and hours to testify because there's a process. People sign up and say, okay, I wanna testify in that bill in one, two, three, four, that's going to be heard on Wednesday. Uh, So people sign up for it. And then they do uh, basically they draw uh, to luck of the draw. So what priority you get into, whether you're the first speaker or the last speaker, public officials always have priorities. So before the public speaks, other legislators, other elected officials, municipal officials, uh, people from different uh, state agencies, they get to speak first. And the other thing that draws us out is that you can while your your speaking time is limited to three minutes, there's an unlimited amount of time as far as when if people want to question you. Yeah. So and sometimes that's what happens. Like I had a bill up there that uh was being heard by the uh by a committee that I wasn't a member of, but it was my bill, right? So I could go and speak in front of that committee when they have the public hearing on that bill. And I knew that uh my testimony limited to three minutes wouldn't be enough. So I worked something out uh, with my staff. I, I had a staffer go and uh, basically say, I'm here in support of Bill such and such. And I I then started asking him questions. Uh, and the way I phrased the question was, it had the answer buried in it, basically. So i say, well, did you know that this bill, if it's passed, it's gonna generate $40 million more for the poor in Connecticut or something like that. Uh, and 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 I said, would you corroborate that? And he said, oh, yes, I've understood that, you know, that kind of a thing. So so there's ways you can extend it out if you really want to get into it. You need the cooperation of a fellow legislator or somebody who will go and testify. But you work it out. You have friendly questions that you ask them to get the information out. So this can go, I've been there and I know people have been there. They'll go there at 9 a.m. And the hearing is going on till. Uh, 9 10 11 p.m that night i mean it's going on for 12 13 14 hours and very few people have the time they can do that of course so that discourages the public from sure from coming along with the fact that a lot of people are i know intimidated about the whole idea of appearing in public and maybe you're going to get hostile questions i was in a hearing once i was co-chairing the hearing i was co-chair of the children's committee and uh one of the members of the committee we were having a public hearing and this woman got up and she gave some very eloquent testimony, very, I don't even remember the topic, but it had something to do with children. And uh, one of the fellow members of the committee was hostile to what this woman was saying. And so when the woman was through speaking, this committee member started asking her questions, but it was not friendly. It was very aggressive antagonistic. And after a few minutes, I had, as chair of the committee, I had to stop it and remind that committee member that the person from the public should not be attacked. They should be encouraged to come and speak in front of the legislature. And her aggressive, uh, acrimonious kinds of questions would be discouraging and disrespectful. So uh, no one should feel intimidated. Nobody should feel. uh, But that's the reality of what happens, unfortunately.
0: And do yeah. they have any impact on the way that people vote these? these
1: uh, yes. Yes, they it can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not saying everybody gets affected by it, but it can be critical at the margin sometimes if it's a close vote. And what happens is I think the testimony sometimes can can have content in it that might change a person's understanding of an issue legislators under and might convince them to support a bill or oppose a bill that they had been opposing or supporting uh, based on the testimony and evidence given by the Speaker. But just as important, if not more important, is if there's a lot of people that show up and they're all for something or against a bill, that has an impact on people in the legislature. Because after all, every two years, they've got to be held accountable and subject to election. And so if there's a huge number of people showing up there opposing a bill or supporting a particular bill and they are inclined to vote against what that group of people they they know wow uh, my rule of thumb was by the way that the public is so timid about this stuff that for every person who comes and testifies there's at least a hundred people who don't testify that feel the same way like a hundred to one right so if we had 10 people show up for a bill or against a bill I would say wow uh, that could be like uh, as many as a thousand people for or against it. Moreover, these are the people who are highly motivated, which means not only that they might vote against you or for you in the next election, but they're inclined to be the activists. They'll go out and they'll not only uh, vote for you or against you, but they'll they'll work for the campaign for you or against you as well. So that multiplies the impact too. after all, politicians are politicians and they. They want to get elected again, uh, and so they're careful when they get into something like that, uh, that they they don't alienate a critical constituency, which could cost them their election.
0: Now, there's a lot of accounting gimmicks that the government uses, like they'll take money from one fund and transfer oh, yeah. it to another fund and then say, no, we didn't actually transfer it because they've, you know, maybe they... When money came in, they didn't put it where it was supposed to go. They put it somewhere else and they say, no, we didn't transfer it. What is the most unique, maybe, or the most troubling of these types of gimmicks that you've seen when when you were either in office or out of office?
1: Yeah, well, one of the probably the most um, publicly known topics uh, basically had to do with the petroleum gross receipts tax. Uh, that's a second tax on gasoline here in Connecticut, which I didn't know existed until I got up at the legislature. And among other things, I discovered this, this tax. And I questioned, I said, what's this all about? This is, is this the, the gas tax? And I was so, oh no, this is the grocery receipts tax. And it's not the gas tax, although it's based on your purchase of gasoline and uh, diesel fuel here in Connecticut. So, um, and so uh, the the governor uh, in this case, it was it was originally Malloy, but then in my second term, it, it's the, the the current governor, basically, was trying to publicly justify the need for the this gas tax, which, by the way, is uh, about eight and a quarter percent of the price of gas, right? So when the gas prices go up to $4 a gallon, the gas tax, the petroleum groceries tax, three seats tax goes up. And unlike the gas tax, which is fixed at 25 cents a gallon, so it, the price could go to $100 a gallon. The gas tax itself is not going to change, but the PGRT, the Petroleum Grocery t- seat Tax, would go up. And in fact, it went right through the roof uh, during you know, when gas prices were going up. We were collecting 60, 70, 80 million dollars more per year from the public, and the public wasn't even aware of it. They just see the price of gas go up. And uh and they, you know, the, the politicians were blaming it on big bad oil companies, you know, they're they're greedy and they're making their money. Yes, in the meantime, target. their legislature was raking raking it in. So um uh so uh Governor Lamont uh basically was out there saying, Well, look it, we need to do this because we gotta repair the roads and bridges in Connecticut. And I'm gonna explain this gimmick that you were asking me to explain. So, and he said, So, what we had to do in these last 20 years is to create enough funding available to pay for the maintenance of our highways and bridges. We had to raid the general fund and take hundreds of millions of dollars, billions from the general fund and put it into what they call the special transportation fund, which is used to pay for highway and bridge maintenance. Well, he was technically correct, but what he was saying was highly misleading. So misleading, it was dishonest. And you might say, well, wait a minute. If it's Technically correct, how could it be misleading and dishonest? And it was this the reason why they had all right, the petroleum grocery receipts tax was supposed to go in directly into the special transportation fund. But at a certain point in time, the legislature said, We're going to direct that tax, which is supposed to be for highway and bridge maintenance and all that. We're going to divert it from the uh from the special transportation fund and we're going to put it into the general fund and then we'll take money out of the general fund to augment the gas tax collections that go into the special transportation fund. So what happened was they were taking all this money that was supposed to go into the uh special transportation fund to pay for highway and bridge maintenance and they were putting it into the other fund and then they took some of that money, not all of it, not even close to all of it, they were like two or three billion dollars short. And they take they took some money out of the general fund and did put it into the special transportation fund. But the reason they had to do that was because they diverted the money that was supposed to go directly into the special transportation fund into the general fund in the first place. So when I talked about it publicly, I said it's like, it's like the robbers who go and rob the stagecoach, basically. Before the money gets to the bank, and then they put some money in the bank, and they're arrested later and say, well, wait a minute, we we didn't rob the bank, we put money into the bank, right? But they, they're not acknowledging they robbed the stagecoach with the money that was supposed to go into the bank in the first place. So uh, it was grossly dishonest, and uh, the Hartford Current actually let me publish an op-ed about it in which I exposed this accounting nonsense, and the Democrats went wacky wild. I mean, they just were like, uh, they were really upset. One of them actually said I should be put in jail.
0: (laughs) In jail?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said what I was doing was criminal. (laughs) Well, I said, what are you talking about? I'm just informing the public about exactly what's going on, which you're trying to hoodwink the public on, right? Right. Yeah, that's a legislator who's still there now. By the I way, I thought
0: Democrats <laughs> wanted to let people out of jail. Evidently, they want to put you in.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> strange yeah.
0: turn of events.
1: Oh yeah. Well, it's like uh, it's the way it is now. Maybe I'm leapfrogging, uh, frogging uh, ahead of your questions here. But so one of the things I would like to say regarding this is that the public can have an impact on things. If it gets active, but the problem is most people in the public are cynical. Like, what can I do? I'm one person, you know, yeah. three million people in the state, blah, blah, blah. Well, the the this issue that we're talking about, the petroleum gross receipts tax. Well, when I was there in the legislature in my first term, and I realized what was going on, um, I went to Tom Scott. He would be another guy for you to interview. He's in my mind the, the best political mind in Connecticut. So, Tom. Uh, I went to him, I said, Tom, uh, this is an issue that should resonate with the public. And I, because I had started talking about it, but I wasn't getting much response. He said, well, you got to do two things. Number one, you got to educate the public about it. And number two, got to give the public a, a means of expressing their position on it. And so we talked about it. I said, we decided to have rallies at gas stations around the state. Now, I'm going back again to 2011-12 when the price of gas was at record highs at that time. It was over $4 a gallon, right? And people were just, do I, do I put money in, uh, do I put fuel in the tank or food on the table? You know, it was like, yeah. it was so expensive, right? And so I started educating the public about how this windfall of profits was coming into the legislature and they weren't being held accountable for it because nobody knew about it. Even I didn't know until I got in the legislature about this uh, petroleum grocery seats tax. So we started having rallies at gas stations and we get a, a couple of dozen people that show up at a local gas station in Cheshire or Meriden or Middletown or wherever. And, uh, with signs and, you know, uh, stop the grocery seats route tax, you know, that kind of a thing. And, uh, and so we, and then we have petitions, which we would circulate. And we said, okay, the petition said, I want to restrict the petroleum grocery receipts tax, you know? And so, uh, or words to that effect. And so we started collecting thousands of signatures, right? In the meantime, every week I'm having a rally at some gas station and the media are loving it because this is like, okay, this is news. Uh, and there's these people rallying and going crazy about the uh, the gas tax, the grocery seeds tax. So we kept the pressure up uh, on and on. And one day, this is like six or seven months after I started the rallies, uh, we had a rally at a gas station and it was on president's day weekend. So the media were there. Uh, and uh, one of the newspaper reporters came up to me and he said, Senator Susio, you've, you've got the chutzpah, not of one person, but three people. And he said, I mean, it as a, com- a compliment, it's not like you're, he said, I've never seen anybody fight like you for, for their constituents. And he said, but you know, of course it's never going to pass. <laughs> right. Cause I, I had to introduce a bill to cap it. And, uh, so I said, well, I wouldn't be so sure about that. We'll see. I know the Democrats are getting, the pressure's getting to them. Well, three days later, I got a phone call from my press secretary saying, Senator Suzio, get up here to Hartford. The Democrats have called a press conference and the word is it's going to be about the grocery seeds tax. So I run up to Hartford and the Democrats are up on the podium there and they talk about this great idea they've got, their idea to cap the gas test, right? So they go through the whole thing uh and uh, and then they're done. And by the way, when they announced this, the press knew I was in the back. Right. So they turn around to look at me because uh, they wanted to know what my reaction was. And I went like one of these things like I didn't know what they were going to say, you know, for sure. Uh, so they're done. And the Republican leadership gets up and uh, Senator McKinney and Senator Fasano uh, and uh, oh, uh, Senator uh, Representative Cafaro, I should say. Um, and so they're this is wonderful. The Democrats have seen the light of day. They're going to cap the gas tax. They're going to give the people of a break they badly need. Senator Susio, come on up here. We know you led the charge, blah, blah. So I go up there and, and uh, I said, well, it is wonderful that they have indicated that they're going to cap the gas tax. But what I heard them say was they're going to suspend the tax gouging for one year and then they're going to resume it next year. And because they had announced that they were going to cap it for a year. So I said, if they do that tomorrow uh, in the session, I'm going to introduce an amendment right away to make it permanent. Well, you should have seen the reaction. (laughs) I mean, people were like, what? (laughs) And uh, the newspaper and the uh, the television reporter from Mark Davis from Channel 8 interviewed me afterwards. He said, how can you do that? That's like, uh, I said, oh, I can do it. And I'm going to do it. You watch. Well, the next day when the Democrats introduced their legislation, right, they wanted to take credit for it. Even though it was based on my bill, uh, so the the uh, the next day when they introduced it, guess what, Michael? It was a permanent cap. It wasn't. They didn't want to keep the fight going. They lost and they knew it. And they, they, I was just ready to jump up and say, oh, I got an amendment, Mister President of the Senate. <laughs> I want to make this permanent, not just one year. <laughs> Stop the tax uh, gouging <laughs> for a year. Perman- oh. Make it permanent." So, so you can you can have an impact, but it needs leadership, Mike. You know, and leads, somebody's got to organize it and lead the charge. And I was gifted with that and uh, that opportunity, and it was it was great. I learned a lot about that.
0: Well, the story that I'm hearing is that how government operates is we have a gargantuan amount of bills coming forward mm-hmm. to be voted on. People who have no particular expertise in the types of legislation that are coming before them there's too many bills for them to actually read so mm-hmm. they have other people read them and tell them what they what they say people right. slip all types of amendments and what you call the rats into legislation <clears throat> to, yeah. to get things passed that nobody else mm-hmm. knows about the public can testify but it's really only for a couple minutes at a time and unless there's a big public outcry it's probably not going to have much of a difference And on top of it all, you end up with an executive branch that I don't know if they they must cooperate with the legislative branch to shift money around to fool people into thinking that they're not doing what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. What surprises me is this. Most people seem to know that government is a disaster. Right. They when people Mm -hmm. and their experiences with dealing with government agencies aren't good. I mean, I lived in one for a quarter century. I know these people don't know what they're doing. (laughs) You know, my, my, my friend Brent just this morning. He was telling me he had a, was having a debate with a fellow – Brent's in prison, and he was debating a fellow prisoner, and the fellow prisoner was touting all types of government regulations that he's for. And Brent said mm-hmm. to him, for God's sake, these people can't even get us to outside rec on time, and you <laughs> have to put them in charge In charge of all these other things. So I, my question is, given that so many people's experience with government is bad, given so many people distrust government, and people know what government is and what it does – why is it so hard to convince people to vote for smaller government?
1: Well, first of all, I think there's a latent cynicism in the public about politics. You know, politics is supposed to be the second oldest profession. Uh, and so closely <laughs> akin to the first old, <laughs> the Not oldest, much different <laughs> from the oldest. <clears throat> no, no. And so uh, I think there's a certain cynicism and then there's a, uh, a skepticism about politicians who claim that they want to shrink government, but then don't do anything about it, really. You know, uh, and so uh, I think that's what happens. And the other thing is, people are not really informed about, about where a politician stands on issues. There, I think there's a lot of a lot of uninformed voters, and I can't necessarily blame them because the media uh, doesn't report things or misreports things, and. And so the, a lot of people aren't up to date, especially at this level. You know, if you're talking about the president of the United States or something, that's one thing. When you start talking about state politics and state law, people don't even realize how much it affects them uh, so you know, the gas tax that we just talked about, the PGRT is a good example of that, that people, I didn't even know, here I am, I consider myself to be well-educated. I didn't know about the petroleum and grocery tax until I got to the Capitol. So how could I, how could I know it was contributing to bigger and bigger government? I didn't even know it existed, basically. So that's where we need people, politicians to educate the public. And that's one thing I, I took a personal interest in doing. I would have Meetings every week, uh, coffee with your state senator every week, uh, and rotating in the towns in my district. So I would go from Cheshire to Marin to Wallingford to Middlefield. You know, every month I'd be in one town. You know, uh, with these little uh, co- have coffee and your senator, and we would talk about things. So people could meet with me; they wouldn't have to go to Hartford, be in their hometown. They wouldn't be so intimidating. They were joined by other fellow citizens. So uh you know they are talking to this big high and mighty senator state senator right so so uh they felt more comfortable that i was they're a peer of mine i'm not superior to them or anything like that so uh, and uh, i had many people say i've never seen anybody like you do, do what you do it's like uh uh you know i went out of my way to uh Communicate with and educate my constituents. So the PGRT thing was a good one. You mentioned the risk reduction pre- program. That was another thing. The ironic thing, Michael, is here I am, one of the toughest uh law and order politicians in Hartford. And I was advocating for your release from prison <laughs> early, right? I was like, what? What's going on here? Uh, but that's because I, I I learned enough about you that I knew that you number one, you've been in prison a long time, uh, 25 years or so. And and that you were really reformed. I mean, you were no longer a threat. To, in fact, I thought not only were you not a threat to society, that you could do a lot of good, given your you. bad experience. <laughs> OK, um, so uh, and again, that hit close to home personally, because Mike Lawler was behind that law. The guy that you interviewed last week is undersecretary for uh, you know criminal justice in Connecticut. And that that law was a disaster. It was passed literally just before midnight and the last day of the legislative session in 2011, and they had no idea of the implications. And I, I, as soon as I looked at it, I said, this is going to be bad. Uh, they're going to release violent criminals from prison. And within six, uh, the year after that, in 2012, there was a murder of a store owner here in Meriden, where I live, literally about three or four blocks from where I live, uh, and it was done by one of these uh, criminals who had been discharged from prison early, uh, having received the risk reduction earned credits. Uh, and he, when he should have still been in jail and he robbed a a grocery, not a grocery store, but he robbed a, a gas station and it was being, uh, it was owned by an immigrant, an elderly immigrant, 70-year-old immigrant uh, from uh, the Middle East and uh, who offered no resistance. He handed the money over to, to the criminal, Frankie the Razor Resto, and, and then Resto murdered him, right point blank. He just reached across the counter, boom, and uh, blew him away. And so there was no doubt he did it
0: yeah.
1: uh, and he should have been behind closed bars, uh, uh, doors, I should say. Uh, and again, so I made that a, a huge campaign issue and uh, uh, we got, I'll tell you one crazy thing about that law. Um, supposedly it was for, you know, it, it promoted programs that would rehabilitate inmates and you're familiar with it because you were there inside the, the prison system and you know what it was like. And it, it wasn't even feasible for it to be administered in a pragmatic or reasonable way because it passed so quickly and was implemented so quickly and applied retroactive, retroactively to like 15,000 inmates. There was yeah. just no way they could, could you know, really vet the record and determine who was uh, violent and who, you know, had basically earned these risk reduction earned credit pro, uh, uh, credits. So, um, uh, you know, we, I basically said, I've got to make sure that the public understands how crazy this law is and embedded in the law. Now, again, it's supposed to be for rehabilitated criminals. These risk reduction credits. Apply to repeat offenders. I mean, people who, by definition, haven't been rehabilitated, they've been repeatedly arrested and put in car- incarcerated, not once or twice, but in some cases, dozens of times. And they're still getting let loose, even though the record clearly shows they weren't rehabilitated. And uh, I, th- that motivated me to, to do even more research, Mike. And I went back, and this is like now, it's 2017, something like that. So now it's been in effect for six or seven years. And I identified over 14,000 violent crimes that were committed by these criminals who were discharged from prison early because they were supposedly rehabilitated. So I kept the pressure up on that. And boy, you got me going on something that I really got into. And it's like, uh, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and, and it, cause this is the most important thing. You got to give the safety of the public. You got to be your highest priority, right? It's yes, like, what good is it do you to have a job? If you got a fear for your life, every, day, every time you open your door, you might be assaulted and killed or whatever, or raped, you, you know? know it, so
0: It's interesting, Len, because this is how I came to know you. And, initially Hmm. when brent and i first wrote our book you know you were at the time were frequently on the news criticizing the prison system and brent and i we were looking to people to get the book to and at first we were skeptical we said no we don't want to get into this guy he's a politician and he's just going to use our book for his own political ends and we and quite frankly we were just wrong we know but we couldn't know Hmm. you personally we were going by what we knew of politicians. Mm. But I just want to speak to the, to what you're talking about, about your willingness to be informed about what you do is we had been trying to get this book out to so many different people. Mm. And even after you, we tried to get it to other politicians had it dropped off to politicians, but never heard back from them. from the time. I'll never forget it because I called my friend Subby and I said, listen, Brent and I decided we want you to try to get a book to this guy, Len Susio. He's a senator. I hung up the phone with Subby. I said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes or so. I called him back and he says, "Okay, I'm on my way to the senator's office. His his assistant said that he will definitely want the book. And from that move, I mean, we ended up meeting the guy that would write a review from the book. I ended up getting to to know you personally, Uh, probably saved me from getting hurt in prison because there was a lot of retaliation going on until (laughs) the time that you came and visited. And that's when it stopped. But when I talked to you about the book, you understood it conceptually. You weren't mm-hmm. just speaking about, well, this specific thing or, you know, well, look what this happened. You got the 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 entirety of it, and it was just so refreshing that you understood it. And I remember watching when you were up for reelection, and you're in a tough district, I should say. You're in a tough no. dis- district, and yeah. you're, a, a, you know, a, I would say a hard right Republican, mm-hmm. at least a very conservative Republican so the odds were against you and but they were talking about you on one of the Connecticut shows. And they said, you know, nobody works harder than Len Susio. Hmm. And I said, you know what, win or lose this election. I got to stay working with this guy because he is serious about the issue. And you, you proved to me that it wasn't a matter of politics for you because even after you lost the election, you stayed in touch with me to work on the issue and ultimately got me my, the, the break I needed to get on the local, you know, the Todd Feinberg show, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I probably went off on a little tangent myself, but I just have so much appreciation for you, as does Brent McCall, because you are the rarity of of a politician that actually wants to do what's right and not just play politics. So I I do commend you for that. Before I let you go, Len, is there anything about this process, topic, hell, any topic you want want to talk about, (laughs) anything you want to say before I let you go?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, You know... You, the public gets the uh, the government it deserves, unfortunately. And you know, if you're passive, or indifferent, uninformed, you're going to get bad government. And so now, again, I hold the media accountable for a lot of this stuff because the media does not report a lot. Uh, and there's not a lot of in-depth reporting that does exist. And it tends to be an echo chamber, uh, just echoing, oh, the Republicans say this, the De- Democrats say that without really investigating and seeing what goes on so uh uh but i would encourage good people who are listening to this to think about running for public office because we need good ordinary people involved you don't have to be a lawyer to become a lawmaker ironically uh, and so i'm not a lawyer uh so Thank God. i would encourage pe- yeah yeah so i would encourage people to um to think about what they can do in the way of public service and make it a point to be informed about issues as much as you can. Uh, You know what? Find out who your state senator is, because I'll bet you 99% of your uh, your, uh, listeners don't even know who their state senator is. Find out who your state representative is, and then contact their office and have three or four issues that are important to you and ask them what their position is on these issues, okay? Uh, And see what kind of response you get. Uh, and that's the first step to becoming informed. Don't rely on the media. Do the research yourself, and I don't mean spend days and, and days and days doing this, but just a simple thing about contacting your your state rep and your state senator can get the ball rolling, and uh, if there's anybody who is listening who would think about a, a career in public office with the, the right motivation, I'd be very happy to talk to them and encourage them and coach them uh, so uh, if they want to get a hold of me, they can reach me through you, uh, Michael.
0: Beautiful. Do you have anywhere do you want people to go? Do you have a website or anything? I know you're no longer in politics.
1: Right, right. Actually, I don't have a website anymore. I used to, uh, but, you know, especially when I was posting the risk reduction or in credit, the scandal, scandalous numbers, but there's only so much you can do. And I'm getting older and I've got nine grandchildren now. So my wife said to me, start chasing the grandchildren around instead of the politicians. And I have to admit, (laughs) it's a lot more enjoyable. (laughs) I can imagine.
0: Well, Len, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, Just one more thing you've done for me. I appreciate you so much. For now, this is The Rational Egoist, Michael Leibowitz, signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.